Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Yo Mama. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Honey Bunches of Springs, Tasty Robot Chow, Lethal for Children, and Adults. Uh, welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. I'm a full-time writer, director, and all the hats that go into film production. Todd's a full-time producer and actor. Uh, he's been featured in Super Bowl commercials that you may have seen during that one football game a year that everyone watches, and all kinds of things. <laughs> and so, I don't know, man. We, we use all that knowledge to uh, analyze films and see what makes them tick, and what can we learn from that? Maybe get a little bit better on our end through the process. We had a week off, and so I'm already feeling the rust. It's just crazy how quickly it creeps up. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. What are we doing today, man? <laughs> okay, let's go right into it. Uh, today, we're doing uh, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Um, so the Russell Crowe film from, I believe it's 2003. So if you haven't seen it, please pause this episode, go watch it. I I, I, you can rent it for like four bucks. I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but uh, yeah. So go pause the episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Bunch of stuff. We'll look at a bunch of stuff too. Uh, we'll look at some of the cinematography, the way they do night scenes, camera work. Uh, we'll also look through some of the story and writing, friendship versus duty, the weight of command, uh, and also touch on directing and editing. Uh, the use of reaction shots and the dynamic audio throughout the film and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. During the Napoleonic Wars, a brash British captain pushes his ship and crew to their limits in pursuit of a formidable French war vessel around South America. It's directed by Peter Weir, screenplay by Peter Weir and John Colley, uh, based on the novels by Patrick O'Brien, cinematography by Russell Boyd, Featuring Russell Crowe as Captain Jack, Paul Bettany as Dr. Stephen, James Darcy as Lieutenant Tom Pullings, Max Perkis as Will Blakeney, and Lee Ingleby as Hollum. A man pushed past you without making his obedience, yet you said nothing. Why? I intended to, sir, but the right words just didn't... The right words? He was deliberately insubordinate. I've tried to get to know the men, sir, and be friendly, but... They've taken a set against me, always whispering when I go past and giving me looks. I'll set that to right, sir. I'll be much tougher on them from now on. You don't make friends with the former Jack's lad. They'll despise you in the end, think you're weak. Nor do you need to be a tyrant. No, sir. I'm very sorry, sir. You're what, 26, 27? I'm 30 next Friday, sir. 30? You failed to pass the lieutenant twice. I know your habits. You're not a bad sailor. You have the knowledge. You can't spend the rest of your life a midshipman. No, sir. I will try much harder, sir. Look, Hollum. It's leadership they want. Strength. Now, you find that within yourself. And you will earn their respect. Without respect, true discipline goes by the board. Um, strength, respect, and discipline, sir. Well, 
It's an unfortunate business, Hollum. Damned unfortunate. That'll be all. So, I feel like this film is in the pantheon of dude films that no one really talks about. <laughs> um, I, have you seen this before? Uh, what do you make of it? What? How do you read that scene? That's like one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Uh, just everything that's happening in it is very subtextual um, and implied. Um, and so I would really like to hear your thoughts on that scene in particular. But yeah, tell me about it, man. Yeah, no, I had never seen this film before. I'd heard Ooh. about it. Um, and heard that it was really good. In fact, it was interesting. My neighbor who watches a lot of movies and listens to the podcast, he said, he said, have you guys thought about master and commander? Whoa. Uh, I, yeah, this was like a couple months back. That's why when it came up, I was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um, uh, and he's, he said, yeah, I rewatched it. And it, man, it's, it's so good. It's just so good. And, and it's a sleeper. And then I saw a interview with Russell Crowe about, the Pope's priest or something like that, his new film that he had coming out and the interviewee asked him about master and commander. And he, he talked about it. Like he loved it. Like he, like it was one of his favorite films he'd ever done. I don't think he actually said that, but he like was just, he loved it. And he's, he was like, yeah, I just think it was marketed wrong. And it came out in this weird time when there was a lot of superhero movies coming out. And this was just like you said, very subtextual kind of film that not a ton happens, but a ton happens. It's like, so yeah, I, I hadn't seen it and thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I love that clip that you played because after after seeing the, the movie, I see a lot more in that clip. Mm-hmm. As he's talking to Hollum, y- you can see in his eyes, he knows this guy is not going to last. He knows, you know, after when when Hollum's set repeats discipline and, and whatever, he repeats that back to him. He just has this moment of... He's lost. Like, uh, there's no reaching this guy. You know, he's gonna die out here. Essentially, <laughs> it's like what he, what he knew, uh, and but you can see that in his face. Like he knows, but he's also giving him, you know, like say what you will about how leadership is supposed to be in 2023. You know, and how and it, but but if you if you're looking at this movie like oh like from a 2023. Um, uh, vision of how leadership should be you're looking at it all wrong this is such a historical period piece that's the only way you could lead back then i am a hundred percent sure of that like you have these guys who are every single day putting their lives on the line even if they're not battling right even if they're not in in a in a battle they still could die at any minute you have to be able to look at this guy who's leading and know that they are strong and respect them so that when they say do something, you do it without asking or else people die. And I guess it could be that you could say kind of like a similar thing, at least in battle, you know, in, in the military. But but here it's there is no other thing. It, there's a hierarchy. There is no other way around it. And if you don't ex- respect the guy above you, then there's a broken chain of command there. And I feel like I got that, you know, really well, not just in that scene, very much in Mm -hmm. that scene. I love the message he gives him. He says, you can be you can be hard, but you don't have to be a tyrant. And I think that that's such a great message, even for back then. And I wonder, was it was he really like that? Was he really, you know, 
you know, really um, stern, but loving at the same time. I wonder that would be different from most other period films that I've seen in that regard. Yeah. And it, to me, it also speaks to the problem of ruling by class because Right now, right, we have much more of a meritocracy where you rise to the top based on merit. Back then, it's less on merit and more yeah. exactly on your station in life as you were born into it. And that Hollum, he just didn't have it. And so I can also see a version of this film or this world where Hollum lives and he just becomes a really terrible leader because he he finds out the only way to get people to respect him is through being a tyrant. And so you can see other captains or other leaders of that era who come up through that way and say, I can't get people to love me, so I'll get them to fear me. And here we are, um, just ruthless and, and absolutely uh, unrespected, but also, you know, they get what they want done. Uh, I All that's at play, you know, in this kind of, in this kind of film. And, and seeing that scene, man, I, I love it so much because... Both they're both doing a great job, Russell Crowe and you know Lee Ingleby, because Ingleby has to present this like shell of a person, right? He has to look yeah. like yeah. someone who's being studious and he's really trying hard. I'm go- I'm gonna get it, and it, it's just something's just not clicking inside of him because all he knows how to do is people please. He doesn't mm-hmm. know how to obey. Yeah, I, that and it's much more than that. It's deeper. Like leadership is so much deeper, um, and it's seeing underneath the surface. Uh, and and he has to register all that on his face. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, strength, leadership. Yes, sir. Like, oh, mm-hmm. fuck, man. All right. Yeah. Well, and I and his response because it on the page, it probably looks like a crazy non sequitur. Like, well. Terrible business. Terrible business. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, and he doesn't know what else to tell this guy. He's just like, yeah, this is all, this sucks, right? This yeah. sucks. Yeah. You, you can go. <laughs> 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 We're done here. You know, I, I, th- I think that Russell Crowe is brilliant in this film. I mean, <clears throat> if you, the way to think about filming this, this movie over however long it took, you know, months, whatever, and keeping in mind that you have to balance being an aggressive leader like he is aggressive and there's times where where he's talking to um uh where is it he's talking to dr steven and he's saying and he's basically tell him telling him like they're friends they're like best friends and he tell basically puts him in his place several times so to be a a really aggressive leader, but also be loving. And th- this almost feels like to me a, like a, a, a savior film for, for Moby Dick. Right. Hmm. Because in Moby Dick, he never, he never lets go. Right. He just, he just goes until he dies and kills everyone except for Ishmael, I guess. But like everyone, you know, he kills everyone, including himself. And I feel like this was going towards that. This was like, he was just was never going to stop, ever going to stop. Now, granted, he got, you know, he he accomplished his goal um, and defeated the French ship. But but in the end, you know, he survives and it's happy. Right. And (laughs) but then at the very, very end, 
that, you know, he's like, sorry, we got to turn around and go get the other ship, <laughs> you know, so he still doesn't get to go back to the island. Uh, so but it made me think of Moby Dick, obviously, because it's just this, you know, single minded captain who, you know, no, we're going to repair at sea. That was the first thing I, I was blown away. In fact, I remember watching it thinking, thinking, oh, man, if I was one of those sailors, I would be like so happy that all that happened and I survived because now we get to go to port. And we get to, you know, fix up and everything. And he's like, no, we're going to repair at sea. What? Are you kidding me? You're going to. Re- <sighs> OK, never mind. Oh, it was like I had a visceral reaction to that, to him <laughs> saying that, like, OK, I know what kind of guy this what kind of guy he is now. Um, anyway, cinematography was incredible. The writing was amazing. I thought the uh, it felt very much like I was in that time. Um, I mean, you know the surgeries that had to happen, the coin in his skull, like how, you know, like real, they kind of tried to make it, you know, was really uh, unbelievable. And I've, you know, I've seen a hundred different, you know, period piece ship movies. uh, But this one felt real because it didn't, it didn't go, it didn't go to the extreme. Like it didn't ever feel unrealistically larger than life in order to be that movie. Mm-hmm. It felt like everything that happened, you know, or that they had to go through or tackle could have definitely happened. So the, the, the guy going over overboard and him having to cut the ropes to let him go. And that decision he had to make. And then like that felt real to me uh the storm the the actual battle them discovering the the type of ship it is and why it's so fast you know like all of that felt very important for the time but not something that is going to make this a blockbuster over the top michael bay kind of kind of film it just was like interesting for that time oh it's low in the water and it's cut to a point so it can it can go faster interesting like And to me, that was that really that actually was super important because it really put in perspective the period, Hmm. uh, right? The time period of like, oh, their ship isn't like that. This is technology advancing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. This technology advancing is just point making the hull (laughs) come to a point uh, under the water instead of being flat. Okay, yeah, that that's old. (laughs) That's that's definitely old. Advancing now is something totally different. Um, So making that be an actual like advancement really put me back into the period, you know, and then little things like the weevil joke was fantastic. And they they hearken back to this, you know, a couple of times or at least one time him, you know, them playing uh, him and the doctor playing music together, really like puts him in love with his his crew they just give a lot to making him a person who cares about his his crew but also has a mission no matter what you know what i mean and will not stop no matter what he will cut the rope he will cut the rope as as he would expect his crew to do hmm. if he went overboard in that same scenario you know and i i really believe that yeah. and that's a testament to to uh, Russell Crowe and his acting, like you said, it's just words on a page, but he brings them to life like like nobody's business, man. It's amazing, dude. I don't think I've ever been able to figure it out until you just said it of why I love this movie so much. Because I saw this in theaters back in 
ought three. <laughs> what? 20 yeah, years yeah. ago? Yeah. Oh, man. And so uh, it was a movie that you walked out of and you're like, yeah, that was pretty good. And then it just sticks with you. And then it just gets better over time for the reasons that you just said, which is it doesn't try to be too much. It never goes over the top. It never tries to extend itself into this like big blockbuster finale where uh, they're, they're whatever stacking cannons on their shoulders and like walking to the other ship, like He-Man or something. And it's none of that, right? It's, it's all these little human moments where a really big point of the film is one person dying. Like this is a war. And one person dying is like really significant and bear takes a, an emotional toll uh, that leads to another person dying. And it's just well built on the emotional grounded stakes so that you never feel the need as a storyteller to go into these other outrageous places uh, because you've managed your stakes so well. Now we really just care about one, one does everyone live, um, right? Does Captain Jack and Dr. Steven, are they going to make it? Like seeing Dr. Steven, the doctor take a bullet and you're like, oh God. Yeah. Like if, if crazy advancement of technology is making a ship pointy, removing a, a, a ball, a musket ball from this guy's abdomen is, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. But he just sawed off an arm because it was broken. <laughs> like, what do you think they're going to do with a bullet? Um, and then he does it himself. Right. Oh my God. Beautiful wow. stakes. It's just so intimate and small. Great point. And yet you always get a feel for the crew. We spend all these little moments with the crew so that it never feels like it's just a Russell Crowe movie. It feels like it's a ship movie. Um, and he's in charge of it. Uh, and that's a much bigger, you know, thing to, to, to watch and, and to play around with because you need all that. If, if, if his, command of the ship if captain jack's decisions are going to be decisions we need to feel that those decisions have a weight and have a cost to them um and you can't really have that cost and weight if you don't care about the men that he's commanding and so finding all these little ways to insert storylines and subplots with these other characters are just absolutely critical and i think that's what makes it so good yeah it's, it's people at sea sure and some of them are morons um, and some of them are just superstitious the way you would expect, like someone on the sea. I mean, even in today, <laughs> you probably have a lot of superstition on the sea. Uh, but how much more 200 years ago when, you know, you weren't navigating by GPS, you had your sextant out and you're like, you've got noon. <laughs> like We now know what noon is. <laughs> Congratulations. Slap on the back all around. Extra portion of rum for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm, i mean and and having the kids on board too you know him teaching the kids and and oh my god when they had to amputate that one kid's arm i you know i was just oh god i i was gutted i was gutted it was and him coming to see the kid afterwards and just giving the book and then walking away like can <sighs> It's it's really hard to put it this in, into perspective, but like, if you're, I can only imagine what it's like to be a general, to be a captain in the navy, or or like a captain of a ship back then, where you have to command such respect, and be, you have to you have to manage your distance, depending on the people that that you're interacting with. Right. 
So like his distance from his friend, from the doctor is different than his distance mm. from that kid is different from his distance from his officers whom he laughs with and has dinner with is different from his distance. Like, and, and some might say, well, he should be the same distance from all of them. In reality, that's not real. That's, mm. that's a, that's a pie in the sky. That would be wonderful if you could do that. But in reality, what he's talking about with Hollem is exactly that is exactly like, like you and I can have this conversation and I can be real with you and tell you, you've got this, you know, and, and, you know, give you the what for, and, and then you can take it and do with it what you will and tell you that you've got this, but I cannot do that with the people that are beneath you. I have to demand it. Right. That's, and, and he, that's what he's saying to him. Like that you have to manage your distance between everyone, depending on who they are. So when he goes and sees that kid, he really doesn't tell that kid, like hug him and tell him, mm. tell him you're strong and you're going to, you're, you're amazing. And, you know, he doesn't do that. He gives him a book. He get you know, like basically looks at him in a certain way, gives him a little pat and leaves. Like, that's really it. That's what you get when you're at that level and you're, and you're, you know, like, and he has to do that. I'm sure I know for a fact that it, that him as a human being wanted to just hug that kid and tell him, you shouldn't be here. You should not have to, to, to do this. This is not the life that anybody wanted for you, you know, but he just can't, he cannot be weak like that. Any display of that would, would change either that kid or anybody who saw it around him, their view of him. He has to be strong, stronger in front of the people who are lower mm. Than in front of the people who are close to him, he was very weak or weakest around the doctor. He, I mean, he let his guard down completely. Think about it. Like the farther down you are, the stronger and more aggressive he has to be with you. And the higher up you are, the less aggressive he needs to be. I mean, he still calls the shots. Don't get me wrong, obviously. But, and so like, it just is, is a great, brilliant way to kind of like give him those moments to show that that that's the way this had to be back then yeah so anyway yeah nicely said i'll run through a few notes um and please jump in mm -hmm. uh, as mm -hmm. always um cinematography wise i don't have a ton but it's always interesting and you'll see this in like 90 percent of films I'm, this is not brand new stuff we've talked about it probably half the episodes for the night scenes uh first off that opening shot is is nice it's a day for night, right? They're doing this wide establishing shot of the the ship on the the water. I think it's the the surprise, the HMS surprise. And it's just a day for night shot. And it adds a certain element of moodiness to it. I think this is also supposed to represent like the morning, right? The sun's about to rise. And so doing a nice day for night there helps you a lot. Uh, it gives you, you know, a good four hour window or more, just depending on what time of day you want to shoot it at in order to capture this opening shot. So that's one way you can do a night scene, right? Is just day for night. It um, Protect your highlights, uh, make sure there are no blown out highlights. And then uh, in post, you can play with the color and, and uh, brightness levels. And then there's the other way. So at Hollum's death, whenever he goes, which is interesting too, because that opening shot is where we meet Hollum. He's like one of the first people to speak at the film. And 
we immediately see that he's indecisive. I think I saw something, but I don't know. Should we beat the quarters? I, uh, 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 and then the, his buddy takes over, right, Peter? Beat the quarters! And everyone starts pounding and running. And Captain comes up, and he's still like, I don't know. I think I think I saw something. Uh, and he's good job. <laughs> like, leave. <laughs> you did the right thing. And then we, you know, fast forward and to his death scene. Now this is uh, a night exterior, and it feels much darker because this, they're shooting it at night. But uh, you still need to see more. You need to see the context of the surroundings, the ship. Uh, not as much to the water until you're actually looking at the water. But the way they shoot that is very different. They don't do a day for night there. They do a fake moonlight where you're blasting in a bunch of blue light from uh, onto the background. And then you light them maybe with lamps, uh, maybe a little warmth, you know, and almost sandwiched uh, uh, in the middle of his face and sandwiched with, you know, some blue on the, on the sides. I'd have to review that scene to, to fully remember, but a lot of blue to emulate moonlight. And it's just a big, huge HMI, maybe a few of them uh, out of frame, just blasting all this light and then a little warmth, you know, oh, we, we have candles like Tiny Tim. Simple, like moonlight's blue. Where is that light coming from? Eh, who knows? Um, the moonlight's clearly not strong enough to expose, you know, for film um, unless you're shooting on some fancy digital camera, uh, but certainly not in 2003. Camera work wise. Lots of wobbling, right? To imitate ship movement. So there's some of these scenes that are probably on a stage and you're just shooting and you tilt the camera back and forth to make it feel like, you know, you're on a ship and you're at sea. And it's just a very smart, simple way to reinforce your setting. And man, that first shot of the flash of uh, barrels in the distance and the, and the fog and then his reaction, right? Everybody down. And then whenever they talk, all the bullets and artillery start hitting the deck. So intense. That's one of the coolest shots of the whole movie. And it really sets the tone for like, oh my God, like this is going to be, this is going to be a ride. And it's so good. And it's a lot of, it's simpler than you might think in terms of the explosions shake the camera for effect. You don't have to shake the entire ship. Now, some scenes they are shaking like the, the environment to give you the sense of, like vibration and that kind of thing. And that's cool. But a lot of the time you're just shaking the camera. Like, Oh, there's an explosion. Boom, boom. Like just give the camera a nice wiggle. Um, and you can create maybe combining with slow motion. You create this really weird sense of time, um, as these explosions are going off. Um, camera work wise, I also really love that shot where we're tracking. This is a shot where the doctor gets shot. And we're, we're intercutting between the guy with the rifle and the doctor looking for the bird. And they're both looking for the same thing. We're waiting to see, oh, what's going to happen? And the way they reveal it is so beautiful. We're just tracking the rifle coming down low, following the bird, firing. And then after it fires and clears the shot, the doctor is right there in our sights. And we see him reacting to getting hit. It's beautiful. And the way they cut it is so quick that you almost get fooled into thinking that there's two separate shots there. And it's really just um, that reveal of the camera moving and then the, and then stopping as the barrel continues to move to reveal the doctor. It's a gorgeous reveal. Um, and it's just choreography at that point. You've done all the hard work with the setup of these other shots. And now let's shoot this one scene, you know, this one take 10 times until we feel like, the timing lines up just right where the barrel clears and the doctor and, you know, Paul Bettany's reacting and, and then you, 
your heart drops as an audience member watching not the doctor he's the one good person on the boat exactly and, and anytime anybody gets shot you're like they're dead yeah right. <laughs> that's it for them oh it's just a beautiful beautiful shot story and writing wise this is just an adventure story I doubt there was, maybe there was an HMS surprise and maybe there was a Captain Lucky Jack. I have my doubts, <laughs> but even if so, this is all still clearly, you know, this novelist, uh, Patrick O'Brien. I mean, watching this kind of makes me want to pick up one of those books um, just to see where else the story was going to go. Cause he's got a series of them. I don't know, five or six of these things. And it makes me wish that they would have made one or two more of these films. Um, but it's just an adventure story, right? And some things matter, some things don't in terms of the plot, right? The brain surgery on deck, maybe it's not intrinsic to the plot, but it's cool and it's interesting. <laughs> um, we get to see and get a feel for the level of technology at play, which helps later on, right? When you see the doctor operating on himself and and all of that goes into that. And so watching him insert a coin onto a dude's skull cap. Uh, you know what? Maybe we're not doing so well here out at sea. Um, and also just the kind of casual interest of the crew and the unsterile environment, right? We're just going to have this dude open for everybody. And it's beautiful. It's a, it's a really great way also to introduce the doctor because we have this little quick aside and you could blink and miss it. And it's not super important to hear, but if you do catch it, it adds to the film and it's where um, the wheel man um, played by Billy Boyd um, from Lord of the Rings. He, he makes this comment to his, uh, his buddy, like, and he knows his birds and bees. You show him a beetle, he'll tell you what it's thinking. And you're like, you're quickly getting an idea for who the doctor is. Um, and that's this movie in a nutshell is like, it's full of camaraderie, duty, and also how they sometimes conflict with each other. And I think that's kind of some of the most compelling elements of the film is this friendship versus duty thing that's happening, right? And so the first thing, and particularly between the doctor and the captain. And so the first thing we got to do, right, is establish their friendship. And the way they do that is through playing music. They play music together. And that's very telling, right? Because uh, given the time period and the setting, we're at sea with a bunch of uh, salty, you know, seamates, uh, or whatever they're called. And you have to assume this means that because they're playing music, the violin and the cello, it means that they're intellectual, sophisticated. They appreciate art. But it also means that they're sensitive to each other, that they can hear each other, and also that they spend significant amounts of time with each other, right? So we can already see through just one sequence that there's depth between these two men. Cool. Now let's test their friendship. Let's see what it's really made of. Um, and so we get thrown into these scenarios, right? We, we find out pretty quickly that the doctor loves science and he's kind of this Darwin-esque character, right? Um, now this is 30 years before Darwin would go to the Galapagos um, in 1835. And this takes place in 1805. And so this is kind of given the idea that maybe someone else could have made those discoveries first. Um, and that's fine. It's, it's kind of a silly, you know, throwaway thing, but, uh, it makes you, it makes you lean forward. Like, could this be Darwin? Could this be like a Darwin character? And contrasting that with the duty of the captain is a really great conflict. Um, because he has to make a decision. Do I let the doctor study on the Island or do I pursue the Acheron? 
duty first, my lord. And then, right, he has an opportunity to pursue the Acheron or take the doctor to land for surgery and, and his survival. What does he choose in? Now we're going to choose friendship. And, of course, if he's a good captain, it's also the health of his ship. That's your doctor. And he's a very good doctor. Um, so maybe the health of your ship and yourself as captain, you want to live too, uh, it rests on, you know what, maybe duty comes second right now because uh, I got to make sure everyone lives to, to tell the tale. And so, but also how much respect does he earn from Captain Jack for operating on himself? <laughs> like that adds a lot of uh, weight to his character because maybe he's not a weak scientist after all. Maybe this guy's got a lot more going on than I was willing to give him credit for. But then even better, the doctor has to choose between science or letting the captain know about the Acheron being at the island after all. And he chooses uh, friendship. He chooses the captain's goals over his own. Um, and that's a really cool like battle. And it's just this beautiful kind of holistic telling of their friendship through all these different you know, tests that, that they put them through. But we also got to see the weight of command because that's a part of an adventure story on sea too. Um, and so one of those is what you mentioned earlier, cutting loose the sail, right? That masthead. Uh, and I love the way that they make sure the audience isn't going to miss it, which is uh, the, the lieutenant, Tom Pullings. Sir, the mast is acting as a sea anchor. It's going to sink us. We must cut it loose. Say it plainly, say it clearly. Um, the stakes are now evident. That guy can die or we can all die. That's not exactly a trolley problem. Trolley problem says you can kill one person or you can kill many, but that one person survives. This is not that. Everyone's going to die. And so the the, the choice gets clear, but it's it's also, you know, going to uh, uh, take a weight because they cue the music and they don't say this guy is going to die, but you feel it through the music. The music, as they're cutting away, begins to tell us this isn't an exciting action. This is grief. And that is just a way to further clarify uh, the stakes through the music itself. Because no one says, but he will die. They don't have to. And I love that on the one hand, they're being very clear. They're articulating, we must cut the mast or we all die, sir. Uh, versus, but they don't say the other thing. We just feel it. We feel the implication of it. Um, it's all subtextual. And then, of course, heightened through the music. But then after the scene, I also love, so that you can feel the weight of his decision, the captain is asking the doctor point blank, what are the men saying about this? About my decision to kill this guy? Like, uh, So he not only cares, but he also does need to know about the health of the ship. This is important. This is a whole conversation about mutiny that follows later. He needs to... He's not excited about mutiny for his own selfish reasons, but it's it's also not good for anyone. Like, who wins in a mutiny? Nobody. And it's just all there under the weight of his command. Uh, but part of that, too, of taking the, the, the temperature of the ship is also in these little moments. The officer's dinner, there's something really subtextual that happens. And I love that no one puts the finger on it, which is that whole story, you know, the, the, the younger guy, Peter, um, is asking about, you served with Rawlings or whoever this other uh, captain was. And he's like, yeah, 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 I did. Two, twice I got to sit down with him at, at, at a dinner. Um, and he's like, could we trouble you for an anecdote? And he's like, well, the first time, I remember exactly what he said, Aubrey. 
may I trouble you for the salt? And he's laughing about it, right? And he's always trying to get it exactly the way he said it. And it's just a, a humorous thing. And what's interesting is if you look back at Peter at Calamy, he's looking away. He's not laughing. He's not amused. He might feel a little mocked because he's really asking for like something to, to hold on to a, a story about this guy that he, he holds as a, as a hero, as an icon in his life. And you watch his face after he tells that joke. And you're like, Oh, that this kid doesn't appreciate that. And so we're, we're taking the temperature of the men constantly because what does he do? He circles back and he tells him a good story. And then you see the kid watching him like he's, he's enraptured now. And that's leadership. It's constantly taking a toll of the people around you and the effect that you're having on them. And it's all subtext. And it's so beautifully done because it's important, right? Reading their looks in relation to what's happening on the screen, we're constantly gauging reactions in the film. And that's so important. I'll come back to reaction shots in a, in a, in a few minutes. But by contrast, we look at Hollum, right? Hollum's death uh, is queued up tragically, right? First, we have... Really bad luck. There's no wind. We're dead on the sea. And we're just sitting there, baking. Well, then you have this guy who's had his brain operated on, who's got a coin where where skeleton should be, and he's quoting Jonah and the whale. We need to cast out the one who offended God is the tone that he's taking. And what does that create? Now, he's not the one who points out Hollem. He's just invoking an idea. We're cursed. We need to get rid of our curse. And so a witch hunt is on now. Who is the cause of this bad luck? Who's cursing us? And then this other guy spots Hollum. And he's like, you know what? That guy was here every time uh, the, the Akron was spotted. It was, he, was on, he was on watch. This is his fault. Um, and then he's, it was his fault whenever the, the, the mask broke, right? He was the one on, on the thing. And it really helps that Hollum is, uh, has those mutton side chops. He's very easy to recognize, even in a storm, so that we can recognize him when all is chaotic in frame. We can see, oh, that's Holland. Man, great point there. Right? Just the way you stage your actor can really help tell your story. And so he becomes the totem. Holland becomes the totem for their bad luck, which leads to insubordination, which leads to a whipping. And I love that there's a conversation about the, the flogging because it's not clear cut black and white. Even in 1805, it's not like everyone's, you know, just hungry for a flogging, you know, but if you're going to have <laughs> someone who's going to uh, butt against it, you want it to be the doctor, the one who's there to heal people. Um, and this might be before the Hippocratic Oath. I don't know when the Hippocratic Oath came, came around. This is probably close to the time, but um, I, I have no idea. And I love that he's there as the voice of reason. Like, we don't need to do this. And there's a there's debate. It's healthy. Um, but it also gives us insight into why the captain's doing what he's doing. And it's about what you were talking about earlier and on a ship like this, in this era with these kind of men, you have to do these kinds of things to, to maintain order or else we all die. Um, you can pretty much put, or else we all die at the end of a lot of sentences back then. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's the, the, the tale of Hollum's death. And of course he ends up owning it. It gets to a point where it's infecting him. And we don't know if he's on the one hand, his, his last comment, you know, other than, you know, you've always been nice to me, Will. Um, and I love Will's look on his face because he's so proud of like, Hey, I love you, buddy. We're good. 
But the thing he says before that, um, Will is like, Captain thinks we'll have wind again tomorrow. And the look on Holland's face as we're starting to feel what he's thinking. Again, subtextual. He's like, I'm sure of it. And as we just hang, we're like, oh God, is he going to kill himself? How? And he grabs, and that's such an interesting way. It's not a gunshot into his face. It's he grabs a, a musket or a cannonball. At any point, he could have released that cannonball, but he didn't. He goes all the way under. He's committed. And so how much of that is him believing that he is the cursed one versus he just doesn't want to do this anymore. He doesn't like the way the men are treating him. And how eerie is it after the after the whipping when everyone starts saluting him to be able to it respect is not about what you're doing. It's all about what what's underneath it. And so suddenly saluting became an act of rebellion, right? I mean, we see this in China right now. Like you're not allowed to to protest. And so how do they protest? What blank sheets of paper by literally saying nothing, they're protesting. And so this, this crew is rebelling by doing what they're supposed to do. That's, it's rough, man. Like that's wow. The weight of command is no joke. Yeah. And so I, the, the last thing I have on story and in, in, in writing is it's very simple, which is the, the disguise ploy that they do at the end could have felt very cheap, but it doesn't feel like a cheap add on because there's been a whole science versus war conflict the entire film, right? The exploration of nature and even that little stick man was invoked way before they got to Galapagos. They were looking at pictures of it and now they have one, right? And and so it's it's been this whole through line throughout the film. And so it doesn't feel like this cheap, tacked on, convenient plot device at the end. Instead, it feels like, oh, a solution to this whole problem that we've been wrestling with, which is these guys have a better ship. How do we get around that? You bring it to you. Here's how you do that. Um, it's through disguise. Yeah. And I, I also love that after that big fight, which is beautiful just chaos it's all chaos things are getting blown to bits people are getting hit you don't know who's living who's dying and and it's just so so good but afterwards we have all these dead faces sitting on the 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 deck some of them a lot of them we recognize we've hung out with these guys throughout the film and i love that because we're at the end of the movie kill as many as you possibly can now right the movie's over anyway there's a bigger emotional payoff. Burn what you can afford to burn without completely dampening the mood or the hopes of the viewers so that you can walk away feeling like, man, there was a cost to this war. There's a cost to getting the Acheron um, and there was a cost to all the captain's decisions. But you know what? Maybe not, not all is lost. We still have some people, right? It's just they, I thought they did a really great balance of who died and lived, right? Peter died. This kid that we've been watching this whole film, he was the one that took over at the beginning of the film, right? Beat to quarters. He, he That was him. Uh, we saw him get promoted. We see Will congratulating him on being on the, the raid um, and all this. And he died. And so it felt like a loss. And, and Will lived, right? We spent more time with Will. We still knew Peter enough to care. And Will, even though he lived, he lost an arm. And so no one escaped this film without a cost. Uh, and that's just a really 
beautiful way to tell a, a, a war story um, so that you feel the weight of war by the end of it. And yet at the same time, we, we exit to music and some sense of interest and adventure still on the horizon kind of thing. My last notes are on directing and editing. Two directors with the same exact script, uh, script can result in wildly different films and experiences. Sometimes even two different editors can result in very different films, right? What do you include? What do you hold on? What do you exclude? And so sitting down, I don't know what they had access to in the edit. And that's why I'm including this with editing. But I would assume, regardless, it's still a directing decision, which is so much of the story is told through reaction shots. And that's a director's decision, right? We don't need to see the arm get cut off at the beginning as we're watching, you know, Will lose his arm. Instead, let's see everyone's faces while it's happening. For one, it's cheaper. You don't have to come up with that visual effect. Um, but I, but I think it's also much more intense. Like to to just watch and feel what people are feeling uh, is is brutal to see what Will is doing and also the bravery because the doctor is right. He's like. Never have I had a bra braver patient. Ooh. Ooh. I believe it. I just saw my son the entire time watching that. I was like, oh my God, I can't even. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I mean, you've seen your son go through almost the exact same thing. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, and same thing later on, right? Um, when the doctor is doing surgery on himself, right? We don't need to see all the surgery of the doctor removing the bullet. In fact, it feels like we're watching it. We're watching it through that mirror. And I bet it was not super difficult to come up with some of that prosthetic mm -hmm. because we're watching it through a dirty mirror, you know, from four or five feet away at least. And you can get away with a lot from that angle. But then when it got to the most intense parts, we just need to watch his face and then watch everyone else's face. Like watching Captain Jack, like freak out a little bit, hold fast, but freak out. <laughs> Yeah, that that hits me harder because that dude, that dude's seen it all, and now here he's he is hard. watching yeah. his friend. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> oh, it's great. You feel the emotion, like just kind of beat you in the chest on that. Yeah, my last thought is on the audio. Um, wow, just whether it's through the 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 sound design or just the EQing of it. Overall, there's so much dynamic audio happening, right? Uh, the stark contrast in volume levels from whisper quiet to drums and cannons and just huge dynamic range so that uh, it'll pull you in before it blows your hair back. And even, you know, as loud as it gets, they're still not really peaking. Um, it's it's really impressive just to to find the right amount of leveling so that you feel like you can hear all the conversation, you can hear everything and yet have it low enough so that when the big things happen, they feel big. They feel like a cannon going off in your face. Yeah. What did you think about all of that? Sound design, EQing, mixing? I mean, it's, it, yeah, it was perfect. It was uh, unbelievable. There wasn't, it's so crazy how like, like sound, I say this all the time. I feel like, I, and I feel like this is a great example that you can have, a great movie with poor sound is a poor movie, but a poor movie with great sound is, is a great movie or can be a great movie. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think I really feel like sound more than more than almost anything else, more than cinematography, even sometimes more than acting at times, depending on the yeah, story yeah, yeah. of it. Like, right. Can can elevate your your film to the next level. And this is a great example because because we always need to feel like we're on a ship. Yes, the camera has to, you know, sway and move at times, whatever, but we need to hear creaking. Right. And we, and we need to hear we need to have pauses in things so that the creaking can be heard and known. Right. And so like finding those, mo- this is a good marriage of a director with a cinematographer, with the, with an, um, the sound designer, because they're all giving each other places to breathe. Hmm. The director is giving is like in the scene you showed, it's a perfect example is giving, is giving Russell Crowe time to develop his response or to not respond right? The cinematographer is doing what he needs to do to make us feel visually like we're on the, on the ship, which also those pauses give the sound designer time to let's, let's heighten the creaking of the, of the, the ship and the, and the wood and maybe hear footsteps and on the wood uh, that sound hollow, you know, things like this, that just you're in it, you're there. Um, and granted, you know, a, Pretty much every period piece film will have that, but allowing each other their time to shine. I I, I use I like this reference all the time. Uh, like Sting is a good reference for me musically. One of the reasons why Sting is so great is because not because he is great, but because he plays with great players and he gives mm. them their opportunities to shine, which make him that makes him look even better. Like if you play with a Vinnie Caliuta, who's one of the greatest drummers of all time, and he's on all of your records for the last 30 years, you let him do what he wants to do because that makes you seem like a better artist because he's incredible. And it's the same thing here. If I'm the director and I have a great cinematographer, allow him to shine. I have a great actor, allow him moments. If I have a great sound designer, allow him moments to do his thing. To to All that does is elevate everything. But if you are if you're a tyrant and you're like, I have a vision, this is it, right? You are not as good at sound design as the guy you hired. Hmm. Let them give them their their ta- their moments. And so and sound, this is a perfect example of all of that. And I just adored it. And yes, sound design is everything in this film. Having those those down moments to then have this explosion, or not just that, but like just like even a steady steady moments where nothing really happens right mm. where they're you know you hear hammering because they're fixing fixing the boat um in the distance right or it sounds like it's coming from above you or or whatever because they're down it, like lower and mm. or you hear water when you're underneath the when you're in the sub deck you know you hear water flowing around because you're under the water essentially sometimes or you're near it you're closer to it it just is really thought out and brilliant and I feel like the editing too did that as well. Like, yeah. So fantastic. Great great point. Nicely said. That's pretty much all I got, man. I'm a huge fan of this. I like period pieces in general. Like war period films are some of the best things ever for me. I don't know if that's my dudeness, you know, coming out or what, but uh, I have a handful of these that I really enjoy. And I don't think we get enough. I wouldn't be mad to see some films come out in this tone of people at sea doing whatever, especially in a period film like this. Yeah. I, 
I'm all for it. Like, I just, there's something to the camaraderie and, uh, uh, the goal and the, the pecking order, all that stuff is, is fascinating and something that I want absolutely nothing to do with. Um, but I, I I enjoy watching it for two hours. (laughs) I mean, imagine, imagine if he, if he was a complete tyrant, Hmm. how different that would change the film. Right. Imagine if that scene didn't exist. Let's just take that one scene out. Let's just honestly leave everything the same and take that one scene that you showed out. It feels like a vastly different film to me. Hmm. You know, it's the it's it feels like it it uh, humanizes it humanizes him and and gives him more of a gives us more of a view into into what he has to deal with from a moment to moment basis, not on a daily basis, moment to moment basis. He's constantly making decisions, you know, like, like uh, on, on how to fix things or how to, how to move forward or how to get something done. And, um, he's just got to balance everything. And so while I like period pieces, I feel like a lot of times they're very much, you know, the, the captain or the leader is a hard ass and they, you don't see that human side of them. And i I feel like they did such a good job of giving this person humanity in a way that you don't really see, you know, a lot. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think probably this is going to sound funny and I know we don't want to mention other films, but go watch 300. There's a reason I love 300. There's a reason I think Leonidas is, is amazing. And, and I think it has a lot to do with a similar way here of just loving your people. Hmm. You know what I mean? There's something endearing about that. Even if you're, you're, I'm going down with the ship and this is what, you know, and you just have like a tunnel vision um, and you are a tyrant, still you have this humanity and love for the people around you, you know? Well so. said. Nice. What are you going to recommend this week? Uh, so I'm a little late to the party uh, with this, but I started watching it just because i think i was just bored one night and i started watching it and i i love the premise and i feel like it's really interesting you want to guess i have no i late to the party love the premise and hijack no but i'll get i'll give you another hint okay apple tv foundation nope no, but that's a good guess. Damn. That's a good guess. I'm I'm gonna recommend Severance season oh, one. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's a couple of years old. I know. <laughs> I think it came out in 2021. Uh, I just stayed away from it. It just didn't seem like something that was interesting to me. But I like uh, it was interesting. You know, th- like the thought of it, the thought of like splitting yourself between work and home, it was like, ah, eh, whatever. It's not really interesting until like you think about it in practice and what that means to one half of you and what that means to the other half of you hmm. in practice. Right. And it, I, I think it was super interesting. Like the more I watched it, the more I thought, Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what that would be like. <gasps> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It would also be like that. That's crazy. I didn't think about that. Um, so I just never thought it through, you know, um, until I watched it and I thought that they executed that pretty well and i'm and ben stiller is great uh i love everything ben stiller does honestly i think he's brilliant um so anyway severance nice i did not see that coming clearly yeah 
funny. Yeah, I was. I've, I've been on the fence because I, I pulled up two just in case you used one of these. I thought you might have uh, recommend like White Squall, which is mm. a Ridley Scott film. Boys at Sea. Um, that's a really wonderful film. But I think I'm going to go with maybe my favorite period piece war film that we haven't covered yet, which is Troy. Oh, Brad Pitt, uh, Eric Bana. Um, I've seen this movie probably once every year or two for since it came out. Like it's one of those films that maybe it came at kind of like master and commander. It came at the heels of a bunch of other like period films. And I think there was just some exhaustion over this thing, right? 300 and gladiator. And, um, you just had all these and everyone was just kind of fatigued. Um, but Troy is a wonderful film and this film, right? We only see captain Jack's perspective. We never even meet the other captain. Not really. Yeah. Whereas in Troy, right, it's all about understanding the perspective of both sides of uh, the Trojan War, uh, which is not a real war from <laughs> what I understand. It's 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 a poem, um, but yeah. it's it's a really nice film. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and I just finished reading a, a book about that. Anyway, Troy. So check that out. Yeah. Stay tuned for next week. Um, we go party with Barbie. That's a terrible segue. Oh my god! Wow. Um, we we we're gonna cover Barbie, the new Greta Gerwig film. You may have heard of it. Um, that thing is still selling out. This has been out for weeks now, um, and it's still packing theaters, which is pretty cool. Uh, so we'll we'll take a look at that, and we'll also we're we're trying to have a special guest on. Um, we'll see if she makes it, Hannah. Uh, so stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note if you want us to talk about things. Um, and if you want to leave a note on this episode in particular, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash master and commander. And our quote of the day is from Napoleon Bonaparte. Of course, success is the most convincing talker in the world. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> from someone who tried to take over the world, I can totally see that being a, a quote from them. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, I feel like there's an argument, um, you know, like uh, it, it, that's from a specific point of view of, of someone who would take over the world, try to take over the world. That's true. That's a good point. Do you know point. what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, so, someone who, you know, I think success is seen today as someone who has a lot of money, mm. you know, or, well, usually if they're very successful at what they do, they have a lot of money, right? And so, like, money is attached to it, right? And wealth and power is attached to it. But I think you and I see it as a little bit different, you know? Um, yeah. But that's interesting because I think that a lot of people today, especially people with money, would probably see that as as the right. case uh, again not i'm not putting rich people in a corner saying <laughs> that generalizing but i i think that um it whether you would believe that or not i think you look at somebody who drives a ferrari and you think they're successful hmm. like you just say it in your head oh that person is successful that's not necessarily the case that person might be the most depressed person in the entire world <laughs> in which case they're not successful at all right right I saw something last night and we can, we can end in a minute, but I saw something last night and I'd seen this before, but for some reason it hit, it kind of like resonated with me again. It was this guy being interviewed 
And he said, and he said, if I could give you $10 million right now, would you take it? Yeah, sure. Sure. Now, if I could give you $10 million, but you can't wake up tomorrow, would you take it? No. Okay. So you waking up tomorrow is worth more than $10 million. You should wake up happy. Like that, like, you know what I'm saying? And I've heard that before, but, but so just going back to this whole idea of success, success is really is waking up. Like, that's amazing, you know, but nobody saw that back then. Like, no, I can't can't imagine Napoleon Bonaparte waking up like, I'm a, I'm alive. Like, no, no, I want to take over the world, man. (laughs) I love it. I, I, I was just looking for something from Napoleon and this kind of struck me that it's true. Like, look, if you want to get a job, if you want to get a promotion, the best way to get that job is by doing that job. Like people want to see that you successfully can already do what they're trying to hire you to do. Um, This is why I haven't spent a lot of time, you know, doing like wedding videos and that kind of thing. Like I have a great amount of respect for people who are good at that. I don't want to be good at that. And I don't want to get hired to do that. And so I want to show success at writing and telling narrative stories because those are the things I want to do, making documentaries. If you want people to be convinced into what you do, into what you're selling, show them a success, show them a track record, and you can do that. And uh, to other than Napoleon, uh, tangentially tie this back to the film, Captain Jack is called Lucky Jack, not because he keeps screwing up, right? There's... Yeah, there's really no such thing as as luck to some degree. Like he even says, I can't create the wind. That's not on me. I can't do everything. I can harness it, though. Right. And that's why his crew believes in him and that they follow him is because he gets results. They've seen him be successful. They're not going to turn on him. He's also going to make sure that he doesn't give him an excuse to. But that all ties back into doing what you say you're going to do being successful is going to be much more convincing than trying to talk someone into whatever it is you're trying to talk to it's just a a pattern in your life of i do what i set out to do i'm successful and therefore it's a lot easier for me to sell myself or to convince someone to trust me Um, because that's ultimately what we're talking about convincing someone is tantamount to how much they trust you those things overlap, you know, pretty close to hundred percent, I would imagine. Um, and if you want someone to trust you, you know, show them a pattern of success and you'll get that trust. Yeah. Amazing. So. Great. Great. Other side of that coin. I love that. Nice. Um, yeah. cool. Take us home. <laughs> awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this. I thought this was fantastic. Good, good suggestion to do this. Um, uh, what a great film. Just so happy to watch it. And I watched it a couple of times too. Oh, really? Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode We as much as we enjoyed doing it. Again, please share us uh, with your friends, subscribe, review. All that stuff helps um, in more ways than you can know. And make sure to join us next week. We'll be doing Barbie and hopefully we'll have a special guest. Until t- next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Music